Good afternoon. Welcome to Zoe Community Church. My name is Jesse. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're new or visiting, we want to welcome you. Uh, we also want to welcome the kids. As you notice, we have the kids joining us in service today. So good to see you guys, I guess. You probably don't even know who I am, but that's cool. Today we have a special thing, okay? Something that's only happened three times, including today, in the whole history of Zoe. We have a guest preacher, okay? And his name is Eric. No, just kidding. Uh, Jared Lawson is going to be coming to bring the word for us. He's sitting right there, so you can look at him before he comes up here. Uh, but let me tell you a little bit about Jared. Uh, Jared, uh, his wife is Claudia, right? And his son is Harvey, and his daughter is Jordan. I think I got that right. They're not here. They couldn't be here with us. Uh, I think they exist. I've never seen them, uh, but I've heard a lot about them. Uh, Jared serves at the Parkway Church in McKinney, and he's actually a church planner in residence. So his plan is to go out and start a new church somewhere, I think, in the Metroplex, maybe even in McKinney. Uh, I met I met Jared. Eric and I met Jared through this pastor's fellowship a little over a year ago. Uh, and we've come to know Jared pretty well. We talk maybe every month. Uh, and Jared is a genuinely good guy. I think I could say that. Or he's a really good actor. <laughs> uh, but I think over a year, we've gotten to know him enough where we know that he has a love for the church and for theology and for the word. Uh, and we needed help when Eric was on sabbatical. So I was like, I got to get some guest preachers. And uh, I got him for August. <laughs> Eric's been back <laughs> or September. Um, but we're really thankful that he could come and serve us, especially on Labor Day. Uh, we really appreciate it. Uh, so if you could join me in welcoming Jared, he's going to bring the word to us. Hello, Zoe Church. Uh, like Jesse said, my name is Jared Lawson. Uh, let me first say, uh, we love your church. Uh, we, meaning the, the other church that I've come from, Parkway Church in McKinney. Uh, we did meet uh, Jesse and Eric. Let me just repeat everything Jesse just said. We met them a while ago. Love uh, getting to know them and through them have begun praying for your church. And so I'm, I'm, I'm genuinely grateful uh, to be here, which could either be genuine or, like Jesse said, I could either be a good actor. And you'll never know. This could all be fake and I really don't care, you know. But it's genuine, so believe me. Uh, we will be in Psalm 23. You guys are going through First Samuel, I believe, uh, perhaps. Uh, and so we're going to take a break from that because, you know, I don't know where you're at in First Samuel. I just know you're somewhere there. So instead of guessing what the next passage is going to be, let's take a break from David, you know, killing Goliath, and let's look at David writing a psalm. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Psalm 23. I'll read it here, and then we'll pray before getting started. Psalm 23. A psalm of David, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my, en my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let's pray before we get started. Father, we love you. Uh, we are humbled by your word. We, we are uh, excited, though this is a well-known psalm, to have a chance just to examine it a bit closer. And the reason why this is so well known is because it reveals your character, Father. So we want to know who you are. We don't just want to know what you've done for us. We want to know who you are. Uh, if the gospel is true, we've been brought 
into communion with you. We've been adopted by your son and brought into your family. You're not just a just judge who declares us innocent. You're a father who brings us into your family. And so I pray that we would see vividly your character that David writes about here in Psalm 23. We would leave change. We would, perhaps if we're thinking wrongly about you, that would no longer be the case and that we would love your word. You would be glorified through us a bit more by looking at your words. We love you. We pray in your son's holy name. Amen. So, uh, there is a danger, slight danger, in preaching on a really well-known passage uh, because we, maybe especially as Westerners, have a tendency as things become common to us, a bit redundant, we have a, a natural uh, tendency maybe to lose interest. Okay, so uh, I was watching a couple months ago a documentary on the space shuttle Challenger. Uh, back in 1986, I was negative six at the time, tells you my age, uh, where Kristen McAuliffe uh, goes up in the spaceship, you know the tragic story. But in the documentary, the reason why they wanted to take a civilian and put them in a rocket ship is because, and this is true, people had lost interest in space travel by the 80s. Right? They're like, have we been to Mars yet? Okay, I'm not interested. And so the people at NASA thought, what should we do? Let's get a random non-astronaut and Make them go to space, and then we'll get more clicks, right? That'll be great clickbait. That was the reason. People had literally lost interest in space. And so when we look at Psalm 23, right, a psalm that maybe is painted on the side of your wall, or maybe is your email password, or maybe is tattooed somewhere on your body, right? It's very common psalm. There's this danger of, you know, it just becomes white noise. We lose interest in it. But if we do that, why is that such a tragedy? Because we miss the beauty of why the psalm is famous in the first place. Because what we have here in Psalm 23 is that David, this man after God's own heart, is going to write one of the most intimate, one of the most personal passages in the entire scriptures where he describes the character of our God, namely that he is a shepherd. The character, not what God's done for us, but who God is, that he is a shepherd. He's going to show us primarily three things. The shepherd's provision the shepherd's protection, and lastly, the shepherd's communion. So we're going to look at those three things, the shepherd's provision, the shepherd's protection, and the shepherd's communion. So go ahead and look at verse 1, or rather the title and verse 1. A psalm of David, the Lord, Yahweh, is my shepherd. Stop there. So first thing, right out of the gate, what do we hear? The king of the universe, Yahweh, is a shepherd. The Bible is going to call God tons of things. He's a rock, he's our fortress, Uh, he's our king, things like that. But David here, right, this man after God's own heart, is going to say he's a shepherd. And don't blow past uh, the fact that David is the one writing this. That's significant. What was David's resume before he goes and kills Goliath? Right, David's going, Goliath is mouthing off, uh, and all of the Israelites are kind of scared, and David goes to Saul, says, why is anybody doing anything about this? Saul says, you know, I don't know, he'll kill us. David says, let me go do it. And Saul said, you're this puny little boy. At least that's how we always picture David. How do I know he's not going to, you know, break you over his leg, throw you to the birds? And David says, well, you know, I'm a shepherd. And a couple times uh, throughout the history of my shepherding career, a lion or a bear has come and grabbed a sheep and drug it off. And so I hunt them down and, quote, grab them by the beard and kill them. And this uncircumcised Philistine will be no different. So first of all, let that correct your puny view of David. Apparently he goes and kills bears and lions with his bare hands, right? Pretty impressive. But David 
is a shepherd. Before he was this great king, he was this shepherd out in the field. So when David describes our God as a shepherd, he's speaking from experience. He knows what it's like for a shepherd to care. He knows what it's like for a shepherd to watch over. He knows what it's like for shepherds to protect and provide. And not only does he say God is a shepherd, he doesn't just say he's a shepherd, he says he's his shepherd. This psalm is incredibly personal. He doesn't even say the Lord is our shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. And in David's day, in the ancient Near East, the world that David is living in, this would have been incredibly, incredibly radical. The gods, so-called gods of all the ancient Near East, uh, couldn't be less interested in man. In fact, most of their creation stories uh, go something like there was this war in the heavens and the gods were clashing against each other and creation is basically an accident. Right? There's no intentionality behind it. And if you, as a, as a nation worshiping these gods, want them to do something for you, they required incredible things like child sacrifice or cutting yourselves. Think of uh, Elijah and the prophets of Baal. What are they having to do to get their so-called god to light their uh, fire? They're having to cut themselves, do all these incredible things. The gods could be less interested in man. But David here is saying, that's not your god. Your god is a shepherd. He watches over you. He's incredibly concerned for you. And this may correct, right out of the gate, some of the ways that we uh, misunderstand who God is. I feel like we, especially in America, have a a tendency, if we're honest with ourselves, to view God kind of like Santa Claus, sees you when you're sleeping, knows when you're awake, knows when you've been bad or good. You guys know the song, right? Be good, right? Be good so that he'll bless you. That's just like every other God in the ancient Near East. If you want blessing, serve them good enough. Do morals good enough, you know, sacrifice good enough, give enough, things like that. That's it's more of a Santa Claus way of viewing. But David here is saying, no, no, that's not your God. That's not the one true God. That's not the king of the universe. Your God is a shepherd. He does see you when you're sleeping. He does know when you're awake. He knows when you've done only bad. And what's his response? Cole, or does he send his son to be good on your behalf? and to take the punishment for when you've been only bad. That's who your God is. Your God is a shepherd. The king of the universe is a caring, faithful, loving shepherd. That's the first way many of us might misunderstand this psalm of the false view of God. But there's another way we need to kind of correct before jumping further into this psalm. A lot of us uh, I don't know you guys, maybe none of you, but people where I come from, up the road, when we read uh, this psalm, a lot of us get it exactly backwards, where it's not really about the shepherd. He's not at the center. Rather, we're in the center, right, as, as the sheep. Uh, we uh, have, have two young children, like Jesse mentioned, and one of the things I didn't anticipate uh, when you have a kid is that people just give you stuff. We have not purchased a toy, and our house is just filled. The amount of Legos I step on is unbelievable. But along with that, uh, in our nice Christian culture, we get tons of Christian books, which I would say a a big majority of aren't the best. Uh, And we actually got one uh, that's, I guess, based on Psalm 23, uh, where the author, rather than quoting the psalm, kind of rewrote a lot of it. And one of the lines, as I was scanning it, you know, as a good theological dad, my my zero-year-old's books need to be super sound. Uh, And so I read this line, he is getting wonderful things ready for me, especially for me, everything that I've ever dreamed of. And I thought, huh, what's that going to teach my kid? God exists for you, right? This is all about 
you. Instead of uh, him being a shepherd, what have we made God a servant? We've made him a butler, right? He exists for you. He's not at the center of the psalm. You're at the center of the psalm. Uh, and one day while I was at, uh, at work at our, at our church, I got a picture from my wife, and it was of her hand, and it was bleeding. And I thought, or I you know, quickly asked what happened, and she showed me she had taken that book, had typed and printed off Psalm 23, and was taping over the, the not great words with the actual psalm, uh, because though my wife is beautiful and godly, she is not good at arts and crafts, and so the tape had, the teeth of the tape, like scotch tape, had cut her finger somehow. I don't know how that happens, but it happened to my wife, uh, and so she was removing this, uh, this idea that God exists for you, right? He's, he's a butler. He's not a shepherd. And so that is the first question we have to ask ourselves when we look at this psalm. Is he a servant to us, or is he our shepherd? We have to ask, who is in control of our lives, right? Are we looking to us to lead our own lives, or is the shepherd leading our own lives. Most of us think we know what's best for our lives. We think we know what we need. And so when things don't go our way, what do we do? We lash out at God. Surely, if he was as wise as me, he would have, you know, laid the path out like it should obviously go. Or we maybe take it one step further. We deny God even exists because surely a good God wouldn't let these horrible things happen to me. But the scriptures over and over and over again, what is it going to correct? It's going to say, you have no clue what you need. You may have an understanding of what you want, but you have no idea what you need, right? You're a wandering sheep. And when the Bible calls us sheep, by the way, that doesn't mean intellectually stupid. I've heard a lot of pastors say that. They've got like lawyers and doctors and people way smarter than them in their congregation, but like sheep, we're all dumb sheep. You need me to tell you what the Bible says. That's not what the Bible's, that's not what that imagery is saying. The imagery is we are uh, morally, we, we wander into sin. If you let a sheep, a real-life sheep, wander without a shepherd, they will literally wander off a cliff. They'll wander into a briar patch and things like that. Left without a shepherd, they, and that's, that's us. That's what the Bible says. That's what you do. Without a shepherd, you would wander literally to your own death. Uh, there's a movie that I loved when I was a kid. I don't know why, because it's not a great movie, called Bruce Almighty with Jim Carrey. Uh, where he gets God's powers for like a week or a month. I don't know how long. Morgan Freeman is God, of course. Uh, who else would play God in that beautiful voice coming out of Morgan Freeman's mouth? Uh, and so he does, after he gets God's powers, he does what I think most of us would do and just gives himself everything that he wants. And then he's receiving prayers from people via email. Uh, and he just says yes to all their prayers. Gives everybody what they want. Uh, it goes really badly obviously, and he finally cries out to God, Morgan Freeman, uh, and says, there were so many of them, I just gave them all what they wanted. And kind of the only good line in the movie, the only true line in the movie is Morgan Freeman says, yeah, but since when does anybody have a clue what they want? Right? You have no idea what you want. Any parent knows that the worst thing you could ever do is give your kid everything that you want, everything they want. Uh, my son, again, is two. He wants three things more than anything in life. He wants to grab the knives and the dishwasher. He wants to climb up on the couch and jump off the couch onto his head, and he wants to tackle his 10-month-old sister. Now, I, as a loving father, deny him those things because I don't want him to cut his hand. Apparently, he's watching my wife do crafts and thinking it's the cool thing to do. Uh, I don't want him to have CTE by the age of four, so I don't let him jump off the couch. And I don't want my sweet little girl who can't walk yet to be tackled. 
Okay, I'm a good loving father. Now, if I know what my kid needs, how much more an infinite God knows what we need? How much more an infinite God knows what we need? So step one, we haven't even really started the sermon yet. Step one to seeing Psalm 23 rightly is with the shepherd at the center and realizing that we are the sheep. Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher, says, no one can truly say God is my shepherd until he has completely given up every idle notion that he can control himself. And when you finally see how hopeless your life is on your own, you'll see the beauty of having a shepherd. When you finally see how hopeless your life is as a sheep wandering to its own death, you'll see the grace of the shepherd watching over us. Our God is a shepherd. So let's not get it backwards as we read Psalm 23. He's a shepherd. He watches over us. He leads for us, cares for us. He is at the center of this psalm. So David is now going to answer the question, what does it look like when the king of the universe is your shepherd? What does it look like to have God as your shepherd? And the first thing he's going to show is that the shepherd provides for you. The shepherd provides. Look at verse 1 through 3. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Uh, He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. What does it look like to have God as your shepherd? First thing, I shall not want. Literally in the Hebrew, I shall have no lack. David shows us then, what does it look like to have no no lack? The first thing, uh, your shepherd provides for your needs. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He provides for your needs. What do you think of, typically, uh, whenever you read this passage? I will tell you. Don't answer. Don't interrupt me. I'm just kidding. Uh, I will tell you what you think of, at least what I think of. Again, I don't know you guys. I'll just speak for the people up the road. Uh, what do you think of? You think of Scotland. You think of rolling green hills, the highland plains of Scotland. Why? Because you are Americans. You're like, wait a minute. Okay. I'm an American, so I think of Scotland. Let me, let me explain. A provision to us here in America, especially in Collin County, I would imagine isn't the vegetables you're growing in your backyard, in the wheat fields that you have at your disposal, uh, that's not where you're looking to for your next meal. What do you think about when you think of provision? Costco, right? Spinning around and seeing every possible option that you could ever want, a lifetime supply of food in one building, right? That's provision to us. In fact, my wife, uh, my wife's from Norway. She's a, she's a Viking woman. Uh, and so when she came to America, one of the first, one of her first observations was, you guys have options for literally everything. You've got 5,000 choices of cereal. In Norway, they just have cereal. Just a box. It says cereal on it. I'm just kidding. But that's, that's what she's saying. I mean, you, you have so many, that's provision to us. Tons and tons of whatever we can want as far as the eye can see. A million choices. Now, as Jesse mentioned, uh, the, the reason why the Parkway Church in McKinney hired me was to eventually plant a church, be their first church planter. They hired me to get rid of me. Uh, and so me, when I think about planting a church, I know you guys just celebrated your uh, fifth uh, year anniversary. When I think about planting a church, you know what my mind goes to? If I could have it my way, I think I would love uh, Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk, either one of them, I'll take either, to become a Christian join our church plant, and then they could tithe like 0.0001%. We'd be like the richest church in history. 
right? That would be great. That's the provision I want from God. Convert one of those dudes. Again, I'll take either. Just, just you know, they can tithe nothing, crumbs, and we would be loaded and set. But if you look closely at that, if you look closely at that de- desire, what am I really saying? What is my heart really saying? I want the provision. I don't care if I have the shepherd. I want the provision. I really don't care if I have the shepherd. David's point here in Psalm 23 isn't the provision itself. It's the shepherd that leads to the provision. It's the shepherd that leads to the provision. If you go to Israel, many shepherds today in Israel, when they lead their uh, their sheep through the wilderness, if you were to watch them eat, it literally looks like the sheep are eating rocks. And if you go close enough to where the sheep are grazing, you'll see there's little mouthfuls of grass behind these rocks. And the sheep basically get enough for a mouthful, move on, get another. And the sheep aren't anxious. Why? They trust their shepherd. That's the green pastures, the Lord leading to where the next provision is. They're not anxious at all because they trust their shepherd. That's how God provides manna for the day. Look at Israel. Manna from the de- or for the day, water from a rock. Why? Because he wants his people to live in a relationship with him where they trust him. The provision is meant to point us to him. But it's not just David who talks about this type of provision. We see in the New Testament disciples asking Jesus, Lord, teach us to pray. What does he say? Pray this way. Give us today our daily bread. We see Jesus say things like this. Don't be anxious about your life. See how the birds have uh, food and the flowers have clothes. How much more does your heavenly Father love you? Right? How much more value, valuable are you than birds and flowers? Why should we not be anxious? Because we have a good Father. We have a good Shepherd who provides for our needs. Right? God wants, again, His provision to point us back to Him. Well, you say, well, that's great, but isn't that, doesn't that just cause more anxiety? We have to wait. Yeah, we can trust Him. That's all, that's all grand. But wouldn't it be better if uh, God just went ahead and gave us everything that we need, and then we wouldn't be anxious? Right? We'd have it all. It'd be right in front of us. If we got stressed, we'd just look and see it, and we'd be okay. Uh, and first of all, that question, that understanding assumes that if you had the provision, your anxieties would actually melt away. And that's just not the case. Go meet any billionaire. You'll see how anxious they are. Uh, we could ask Elon Musk after he joins our church plant. Uh, but uh, I, I had a friend growing up, and his mom did grow up uh, really, really uh, poor. And they didn't know where their next meal was going to come from. And she married a man who was fairly well off, and so literally had everything she could ever want. And guess what happened to her anxiety? It got worse. And they had to have three freezers stocked full in the garage all the time with food because of her anxiety. The provision, getting the provision, didn't make her anxiety go away. Having the provision is never going to heal anxiety, stress. There's only one thing that will, and it's trusting the character of your shepherd. Trusting that he's a good shepherd, that he's a loving shepherd. David is pointing out that when, uh, when you, the, the way you get over your anxieties isn't by getting everything that you actually want. It's rather by trusting the one who's going to lead you to the green pastures. And you say, well, that's, you know, that sounds easy, but how do I actually do that? Right? Every anxious person doesn't want to be anxious. Every person that's uh, restless wants rest. But you say, you know, I can't just reach into my heart and make it change. How do I actually do that practically? And I'll give you uh, an example. Uh, Jeff Ashley is the pastor of the church uh, where I work. 
you don't know him, but imagine he's godly. Uh, one of the things that my wife and I take very, very seriously is who do we trust with our kids? Uh, as, you know, who's going to babysit them? Who's going to watch over them? Who would we leave them to if something were to happen to us? And Jeff is, is, is one of those people. It's actually a small circle. We have commitment issues. But uh, he's one of those people. We would trust him with our lives. We'd trust him, more importantly, with our kids' lives. Now, six years ago, I would not trust Jeff. And the reason is, I didn't know who he was. He was a stranger to me. So, here's the question. What changed from Jeff six years ago and Jeff now? Easy. I got to know him. I saw his character. I saw how he loved his own family. I saw the man of God that he is. I simply got to know him. And it is the same with your God. Of course, you can't just reach into your heart and make things change. Rather... You get to know the character of your God. You read the scriptures. You pray. You fast. You, you, all the means of grace that he's given us that we might know him. You meditate on the reality of the gospel. That when you were a far off rebel, the God whose face you spit in sent his son to take the punishment that we deserve. Not just take the punishment, not just take all the negative, but give us the positive. Give us eternal glory with him. Adopt us into his family. So when he looks at you, he sees his son. He says, this is my beloved son, my daughter, with whom I'm well pleased, because he sees Christ in you. We're in Christ, as Paul says. Paul's favorite phrase in the New Testament, meditate on the gospel. See the character of your God, and that will change your heart. There's no secret formula. We always want the secret formula. It's simply meditating on the things that have become common to us. The scriptures, prayer, worship, gathering with the saints, challenging one another, things like that. That's how we get our hearts to change. We get to know the character of our God. And when you finally see the character of your God, that he is a shepherd, your anxieties will melt away. Your anxieties will melt away. So next thing, he provides for our needs. What else? He provides rest. He leads me, makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters, literally in Hebrew, the waters of rest. Uh, when you uh, rest here, isn't just physical rest. It's, it's, a total rest, meaning rest from your enemies. You can, uh, in a way, focus on the refreshing drink and who's watching your back, the shepherd. It's this idea of you can completely rest because he's in control of everything. So when you go to sleep at night, right before you close your eyes, you should worship. 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 It's a difficult word to say. Why? Because your God is not going to sleep. You can rest because you're a creature. The creator never sleeps. You can rest because he doesn't. Right? He leads me by the waters of rest. What else does he provide? He provides need, for our needs. He provides rest. Next, he provides life. He restores my soul. With the shepherd, you don't just exhale anxiety. You inhale life. Right? He doesn't just remove the bad. He fills you with the good. He provides life. And then lastly, he provides guidance. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. This, this, this translation, paths of righteousness, literally means the right, the correct paths. It's got this sense of the paths of salvation. That's why it's translated in that way. He leads me down the paths of salvation. Notice, God isn't standing at the end of the path and saying, figure it out. That's how a lot of us tend to view God. We're standing here. There's a million different ways. What do we often say? What's God's will for my life? What's God's will for my life? We imagine ourselves here. There's a billion different paths. He's down there. He's got his arms crossed, and he's like, figure it out. I'm not going to help you. That's how we imagine him. Right? So we divine the spirits. We read the tea leaves. Right? What is his will for my life? Send me a sign. 
God. That is not the character of your God. That is not the shepherd. He leads me down the right paths. He comes and takes me down the paths himself. Abraham, wandering, a moon worshiper from Ur, God comes down to him. He makes known his ways to Moses. He guides Israel personally, comes down, shoves them away, brings them out of slavery, gives them his covenant. He gives us his scriptures, and mostly he gives us his son. God is not a God who says, come figure me out, figure out the right path. Rather, we have a God who comes down, sends his son, sends his spirit. What is the last verse we'll read in Revelation? Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. You have a God who comes down and leads you down the paths himself. He leads you down the right path. So that's the first thing David's going to show us about the shepherd. The shepherd provides, provides needs, rest, life, and guidance. But there's more he wants to tell us about the shepherd. Look at verse 4. The next thing, he not only provides, he protects. The shepherd not only provides for us, he protects. Verse 4, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. So David doesn't give some sort of light example here. Uh, You know, he doesn't say, when the bad guys come, you fight them off, right? That's how you protect me. Rather, he gives the deepest, darkest example possible of the shepherd's protection. In fact, one commentator that I read said this should be probably better translated, the valley of death's shadow. Is this understanding that death is so close to you that its shadow is over you. And so not only is, is death's shadow over you, but there's evil all around him. He says, I will fear no evil. That's because evil is there. And again, in Hebrew, this word for evil literally means something that hunts down with malicious intent, something that's after you. Uh, my wife and I, uh, I keep bringing her up because I love her so much. My Norwegian wife, I met her in Australia. It's confusing. That's why people think she's made up because it sounds like a made up story. Uh, we met in Australia at a missions base there. We were doing a year long Bible school thing. We stayed there. She was actually there five ish years. But before I went to Australia, everyone in safe Texas warned me. They said, Hey, everything that kills you is in Australia. So be careful. And I was like, Psh, that's fine. I'm 22. Nothing can really kill me. So I'm watching Shark Week the week before my uh, plane ride or, to Australia, as you do, right, as a 22-year-old. And it was something like the top 10 shark attacks of the past year, and 100% of them were off the coast of Australia. So I thought, surfing, no. Okay, next, you know, I get to Australia, and there's like poisonous snakes coming around our house all the time, really big ones. Uh, Kangaroos, we think, oh, sweet kangaroos. No, really, really mean. Yeah, they'll balance on their tails. They'll kick you. Those things are mean. But there's one thing, one animal that is worse than all the O's combined, and it is the magpie. Now, you might wonder, what is a magpie? There's great YouTube clips for you to watch after the service. Magpies are crows that have done steroids for years, uh, and when they nest in nesting season, which is around the fall, they are j- crazy territorial. They're very violent. When I got to Australia, I noticed all the, the people riding bikes and the people riding scooters, all their helmets had these zip ties. It's like, fashion's weird in Australia. Then I figured out it's protection. It's to, uh, cause magpies literally swoop and they will claw you in the face with their steroid bird legs. Uh, and people wreck all the time. And so we were on a mission space. We had several houses on one street. So I lived in this house. We had dinner in this house down the street 
There's a bunch of magpie nests on the way. So I would walk, and there's one thing you need to know. If you look at a magpie, this is for when you go to Australia. Write this down. Uh, if you look at a magpie, it stops. It doesn't fly away. It stops in front of you and says, turn around, I dare you. So you watch. It's frozen. That's great. That's great if there's one. Now, what if there's another one here? You've got to do this kind, of, this kind of thing. So I started carrying around like a fishing pole and a golf club as I was walking to dinner. They're horrible. Now, that is the picture David is giving here. Not really. But it's this understanding that evil is after you. He's giving the darkest possible picture. Death is there. Evil's coming after him. And yet, what does he say? In the midst of all of this, I will not fear. Why? For you are with me. I will not fear, for you are with me. He doesn't fear because the shepherd is with him to protect him, to comfort him. So here's the key question for us. What is our comfort in the midst of suffering? What is our comfort in the midst of persecution? Is it the suffering being over, right, the end of the suffering, or the shepherd being with us in the midst of the suffering? The shepherd being with us in the midst of the suffering. And if we're honest with ourselves, I think most of the time our hearts run to the light at the end of the tunnel. Right? We, we all lived through 2020. And what was the thing you heard all year? I can't wait for 2021. Just get us out of this horrible year. And then we realized, oh, New Year doesn't work like that. 2021 still pretty tough as well. But what does that tell you? I can't wait for 2021. I want this year to get over. I want this suffering to stop. That's what our hearts often run to. But what here uh, is David saying? It's not that you get me out of it. He doesn't just say, uh, when I'm, when I'm in, th- in the midst of the deep, dark valley, you get me out of it. Rather, he says, when I'm in the midst of the deep valley, you are with me in the midst of it. You are with me in the midst of it. Uh, when someone is going through an incredible suffering, when someone's experienced a tragedy, I would imagine most of us know, know one of the worst things we could do is show up and bring a lecture, right? Show up to the hospital and say, just explain away their suffering. And probably one of the best things you could do uh, is just be with them. Just sit with them, right? Job, the great book of suffering. When Job uh, in chapter 3 is, is going through all the stuff and his friends show up, what do they do first? They sit with him for a week, and they don't say anything. And everything seems good, and then for the rest of the book, they start talking, they start lecturing, and things start to go really, really bad. In fact, Job in chapter 16 says, miserable comforters are you all. Right? When we're in the midst of a tragedy, what do we want? We want our best friends there. We want our parents there. We just want them to be around us. And that is just one human comforting another. What if... The one that's with you in the midst of the suffering doesn't just bring comfort with them, but is the source of all comfort. What does Paul say at the beginning of 2 Corinthians? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of all mercies, and the God of all comforts, who comforts us in our affliction. Most of the time we pray, God, give me an easy road. David here is praying, God, be with me on the difficult road. Be with me on the difficult road. I could show you saint after saint after saint throughout church history that had to learn this incredibly difficult lesson of the true comfort is God being with you in the midst of suffering, but I'll just give you one. Uh, David Brainerd was a missionary to the Native Americans during the time of the Great Awakening in the 18th century, uh, and he, by the numbers, wasn't great. I mean, he had like maybe 100 conversions, not Billy Graham-type numbers, 
But uh, his life was marked by suffering. He struggled. He died of tuberculosis at 29. That's how old I am. Uh, died at 29. He relentlessly struggled, or struggled with relentless depression. He was often alone. Again, not seeing much fruit. But throughout his life, he kept a diary, kept a journal of his prayers that he just wrote for himself. Uh, but he, he, towards the end of his life, meets Jonathan Edwards. He actually dies in Jonathan Edwards' home, and Jonathan Edwards took uh, the diary and published it, and it basically uh, stirred the modern missions movement uh, as people saw things like this. When he's in the midst of his horrible, horrible suffering, he says things like this. Such fatigue and hardship as uh, I have experienced have served to wean me more from this earth, and I trust will make heaven sweeter Formerly, when I was exposed to cold and rain, etc., I was ready to please myself with the thought of enjoying a comfortable house or a warm fire or other outward comforts, but now these have less place in my heart through God's grace, and my eye is more to God for comfort. In this world, I expect tribulation, and it does not now as formerly appear strange to me, and I don't in, uh, in such seasons of difficulty flatter myself that it will be better hereafter, uh, but rather think how much worse it might be, or how much greater trials others of God's children have endured, or how much greater are yet perhaps reserved for me. But blessed be God that He is the comfort to me under my sharpest trials." And what David Brainerd here is echoing is what King David is saying here in Psalm 23, which is just this, in the midst of my deepest, darkest suffering, you're there. I will fear no evil because you are with me. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. And you may say, that's great, good for David, both Brainerd and King David, but uh, that's not what my life is like. God doesn't show up every time I call on him. I've called on him in the midst of horrible pain, and he seems a zillion miles away. Uh, so what's up with that? And to that, I mean, I, I will just say they're, they're just because we don't see that God is there in the midst of the suffering doesn't mean he's not there. There are horrible tragedies that we cannot, with our brains, conceive of God being in the midst of it. And it's those times where the Bible is just going to say things like, your way, or God's ways are higher than your ways. His thoughts are higher than your thoughts. And trying to comprehend the mind of God and how he could be orchestrating this is like trying to pour all the waters of uh, the oceans in a communion cup, in a little thimble, trying to fit the Atlantic Ocean. And that, uh, that's our brain comprehending, comprehending an infinite God. But I guarantee you, some of you have at least tasted uh, this idea of going through something horrible, and then coming out the other side and seeing how God was in the midst of it, right? You lose your job, and then a better one comes along, and you think, oh, I'm so glad. I, I, I couldn't see a way out of this, but now I see. Right? You, you're, uh, uh, a boyfriend, a girlfriend dumps you, and you're heartbroken. Life cannot continue. That was the person I was supposed to marry. My life is over. And then now you're with your spouse, and you're like, oh, thank God. Literally, thank God that I did not marry that first person. Again, my wife all the time is telling me how grateful she is. She didn't marry one of those other losers, but found me. You guys don't know me. That was a, that was a, that's a joke. Uh, but that's just a tiny taste. Those little situations, tiny taste of what will happen to every single experience of your life when you finally see Jesus face to face. Every single experience when you finally see Jesus face to face and he shows you how even the worst of sufferings was original or was eventually for your good. 
Uh, one of uh, the Chronicles of Narnia books, C.S. Lewis's books that I love most, isn't very popular. Uh, it's not a popular one. It's The Horse and His Boy. Uh, it's the story of Shasta, this kind of servant boy who goes on this long journey with his horse uh, to warn Narnia of this coming invasion. And all throughout the journey, Aslan, the lion that represents Jesus, is hidden. Shasta never sees him, uh, but Aslan's always there protecting him. There's a time where he's walking on a cliff. And he would have fallen off in, this dark, in the darkness of night, but Aslan saves him. There's a time where Shasta is sleeping and the enemies are coming to kill him and Aslan fights him off and he doesn't ever know it, doesn't know who the lion is. And then finally, at the end of his life, uh, he meets Aslan, or at the end of the journey, he meets Aslan and sees how all these horrible things was actually Aslan there working things out for uh, his good. And there's a lot of times where the shepherd's nearness can be like that. We don't see that he's there, we don't feel that he's there, but he is there, providing, protecting, and one day, one day, you will see, as Samwise Gamgee of Lord of the Rings says, everything that is sad will become untrue. You will see when you see him face to face. Even your worst moments, God turns to absolute joy. So, the shepherd provides, the shepherd protects, and there's one more thing David wants us to see, and it's the shepherd's communion. Seen the shepherd's provision, seen his protection. Let's look at the shepherd's communion. Verse 5, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So he's shown us the provision, shown us the protection, and now in verse 5, he's going to show us one of the most intimate images in the, uh, in the Old Testament, and it's a banquet. The banquet is one of those intimate images uh, that you could give. Now, remember, David's already eaten in this psalm. He's already been to the green pastures. He's full. That's not what the banquet's about. It's not about provision. Rather, it's about communion with the shepherd. You prepare a table before me. David is the honored guest. The Lord is uh, setting the table for David. You anoint my head with oil. Anointing in the Old Testament is usually anointing for a king, but there's also a custom of when you come in from a long journey, you would uh, anoint your head to wipe away the dirt. You're being prepared for this table. There's refreshing, or uh, some uh, refreshing presence of the shepherd. My cup overflows. There's this abundance. There's this joy in the presence of the shepherd. One of the things that we need to realize is it is not enough to have the shepherd's protection and the shepherd's uh, provision, you must know the shepherd. You need the shepherd's communion. Any cosmic force technically can provide for you. Any cosmic force can protect you, but you don't worship some random cosmic force. You worship a personal God who made you to know him personally. As the early church father Athanasius said, what profit would there be Uh, What would be the point of those who were made if they did not know their own maker? What would be the point of creatures if they weren't made to know their creator? And David here is saying, what what would be the joy in being a sheep if you didn't know the shepherd? And if you miss this final piece, if you have the provision, if you have the protection, but you don't have the communion, you don't have Christianity. If you miss this final piece, you don't have Christianity. What you have is is a transaction. I'll obey you. I'll serve you if you provide for me, if you protect me, and then we're right back to where we started. God's a butler. 
right? You're, you're just like any other god in the ancient Near East. I'll do these things if you'll do things for me. Scratch uh, my back, if, if, or I'll scratch your back if you scratch mine. That's moralism. That's not Christianity. And we're right back to, again, where we started. David here is saying, don't miss the banquet. Don't miss communion with the shepherd. What else does he say? Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. Uh, this word mercy here, in my opinion, I'm not a Hebrew scholar, but in my opinion is an unfortunate translation. Uh, it's this Hebrew word chesed. Uh, notice how I said it with the Hebrew emphasis because I'm so scholarly. Uh, also, joke. You guys don't know me. I say sort of stuff like that. So it's, it's, it's the Hebrew word that is for God's covenant love. God's covenant love. When God shows up to Moses in Exodus 34, when we see the first time in all of Scripture, God explicitly describing his character. Moses says, show me your glory. I want to see your face. God says, no, if you see my face, you'll die. But here's what we'll do. I'll put you on this rock and I'll pass before you and I'll declare to you my name. I'll declare to you my character. And he says this, the Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in hesed, steadfast love keeping hesed, steadfast love for thousands, right? This is God's covenant love, his unbreakable love. Surely goodness and hesed will follow me all the days of my life, literally will pursue me, will run after me. A shepherd uh, leads the sheep. He walks in the front and he typically either has a sheepdog or a donkey sometimes that would run alongside the line of the sheep to make sure they don't stray because the shepherd's leading, doesn't have time to look backwards. He's got little uh, sheepdogs and donkeys that do that for him. So David is saying, as you lead me down the paths of righteousness, your character, your goodness, your steadfast love run after me. I try to go this way, your goodness brings me back. I try to go this way, your steadfast love brings me back in. You're literally surrounded by the character of God. David is saying, I literally cannot wander, wander away because your character preserves my life. And then lastly, he says, and I shall dwell or remain in the house of the Lord forever. So as the shepherd has been leading David through the pastures, by the still waters, through the deep, dark valley, down the right path, we see here the journey ends with him returning to the house of the Lord. Notice where he wants to stay forever, the rest of his days. What is the house of the Lord in the Old Testament? You guys know this, you're reading First Samuel. The temple, right? This place where God's presence, I guess tabernacle in 1 Samuel, you'll get the temple later. I'm sure you'll walk through First and Second Kings after this, and you keep going. Uh, so the temple, this place where God's presence is meant to dwell, where God is meant to meet with his people, that's where David wants to be with God in his presence for the rest of his days. My ultimate joy, he's saying, isn't the provision, it's not the protection, it's communion, it's being with my shepherd. He says this other places too. Psalm 1611, in your presence, O God, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. Psalm 4, you put more joy in my heart than they when their grain and their wine abound. Psalm 27, one thing I ask of the Lord that I will seek after, that I might dwell in the house of the Lord for all the days of my life and gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. David's ultimate joy is being with his God, gazing upon the beauty of his God. That's where he ends. That's where he wants to remain for the rest of his days. And one, one commentator that I was reading said this, the point of Psalm 23, the point of this shepherd metaphor is that the destination one reaches after being led along the paths of righteousness, the destination one reaches at the end of his life, the destination 
towards which one is shepherded and indeed towards which one is hurried along by God's pursuing goodness and hesed is none other than God's very self. God is David's destination. And so the question again for us is, is he our destination? The question you'll have to answer that will be foundational for your Christian life is, is God a means to something else or is he the ultimate end? Is he a means to provision? Is he a means to protection? Or is he what you're after? Is he an end or is he a means? Right? Knowing him, communion with him. So let's ask a couple questions. Let's diagnose this. Is he an end or is he a means? Is he the one that we're after or are we looking to him to get something else? Question one, when things don't go your way, do you have a tendency? Do you have a tendency to lash out at God? And if you do, Why? Is it because you want him to get you something else? Right? That's the danger of the prosperity gospel. Come to Jesus so you can get money, you can get stuff. When things don't go your way, do you lash out at God too? Are your prayers exclusively asking for things? Right? God says ask for things, that's good, but is, is that all that there is? You're just asking for stuff. Are you going to him to get something else? Is reading, your, is reading the Bible, is reading the scriptures a duty? I have to do this because I'm a Christian, the Bible says so. Or is it a delight? You long to read his word. You want your heart stirred. You want to hear from your God. When you think about heaven, here's an interesting one. When you think about heaven, when you think about eternity, what excites you? Street of gold, mansion that he's building, big, big yard, lots and lots of room, all that stuff. Or is it the fact that he's there? Your shepherd's there. You'll have communion with him. Is heaven exciting because you'll have him finally? When you discipline your kids, Assuming you do, is it because you want them to be moral, you want them to be conservative, right? Or uh, is it because you've tasted and seen the goodness of your God and you want them to taste and see? You want them to be disciples as well, not just so that they can be Christians and moral, but so that they can taste and see that the Lord is good. Did you become a Christian so you could get something or someone? Is he an end or is he a mean? And David here is saying he is the ultimate end of all ends. That's how he ends this psalm. Praise you for the provision. Praise you for the protection. But my ultimate joy, my ultimate desire is to be with my shepherd. That's what David says. And that's where David ends this incredible psalm. It's the, one of the most popular psalms, one of those popular passages in the scriptures, rightfully so. But we, as Christians today, don't really see the full beauty of Psalm 23 until we see the one that it points to, the one that will come from David's line who will be the ultimate shepherd, Jesus Christ, who comes, why? Because we all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us, everyone, has turned to his own way. And he comes, and what does he say? I'm the good shepherd. We read it earlier. I'm the good shepherd. How does he provide for us? He says, I will lay down my life for my sheep. In fact, he's the only shepherd in all of history who's ever become a sheep. He walked through the valley of death's shadow, but instead of saying, but you're with me, what does he say? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was forsaken so that we could be brought in. He was forsaken so we could be truly comforted. He takes an overflowing cup, except the overflowing cup, he takes it in the Garden of Gethsemane, let this cup pass from me, except his cup isn't overflowing with the joy of the Lord. What's it overflowing with? The wrath of God. He drinks the cup of wrath so that you and I could drink the cup of joy at being at God's table. 
And because of him, we don't just go to a, ta- a temple. We don't go to a place to meet with God. We go to a person. Jesus says, he who has seen me has seen the Father. Something greater than the temple is here. And he brings us to the ultimate house of the Lord where we will have true fellowship with God for all eternity. We don't need a sacrifice to enter into his presence. He is the sacrifice. The curtain has been torn because of him. And because of him, we have the ultimate end of all ends, communion with our God, personal communion, adoption into the family of God. Uh, When Claudia and I, years ago, were in Rome, we went and visited the catacombs, the earliest Christians, where a lot of them would hold services, were buried, things like that. And I expected, you know, it's Rome, so I expected to see a lot of, you know, crosses with Jesus on it, a lot of Catholic-y stuff, if you will. And I was surprised, the thing I saw the most, particularly around the catacombs, was drawings or sometimes statues of Jesus, or a shepherd, with a lamb over his neck. And I asked our tour guide about it, and he said that was the primary image that the early church had for Jesus. They viewed him as a shepherd who had lain down his life for them that watched over them in the midst of incredible persecution, and rightfully so, because when you see what Jesus Christ has done for you in the gospel, you can say, like David here, with all the confidence in the world, the Lord is my shepherd. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you that uh, you are not a far-off God. You are not a God that we have to hope is good, but rather you're a God who's revealed himself, who's revealed his character, and that this is your character. This is true of you. You are a loving shepherd who provides. You're a shepherd who protects, and you're a shepherd who brings us into your family. So I pray that you would change our hearts. There, again, there's no way we can just make our hearts change. Your spirit does that. In the same way that you sent your son to die for us, you sent your spirit to sanctify us. So I pray that you would do that, that we would no longer, uh, if we are, walk with this, this false view of God. When we see the, the stress, the anxieties of the world, we wouldn't crumble, but we'd realize our God is in control. And even if we can't see, you're working it out for our good. We would see that the gates of hell will not prevail against your church. You win. The, the best case scenario or worst case scenario for Christians is eternal glory with you where we know you, where we get to stand in the presence of the God of all joy, the God of all peace, the God of all love. Stamp that on our hearts, Father, that we may see you rightly and that our lives would be changed as a result. We love you and we pray in the name of your Son, our Good Shepherd, Jesus Christ. Amen.